If you're a member of Centennial Church or this is your church home, you're regular here, just we like to uh, treat you as adults and remind you regularly how we're doing around here as a family in terms of our budget. And uh, we set the budget early in the year in January or early February. We're currently about $50,000 behind giving on our regular budget. Um, Just to give you some perspective, our monthly budget is $55,000. So we're basically about a month behind on our giving. So uh, that's kind of been a trend that's been going through the summer. We want to improve on that, but we also uh, just want to treat you as, as family and let you know that. Hope that you will pray through that. And God, um, year after year, has just provided. Typically, we see an uptick uh, in the fall and, and on into December for year-end giving. So I just want to bring, bring that to your attention. And if this is your church family, hope you'll pray and uh, consider how you can give or perhaps how you can uh, give more. So if someone would just write a check for $50,000 this morning, uh, we'll just all stand up and praise God for that. Um, and I'm only half-joking. Um, but uh, could I pray, before we look into God's Word, can I just thank God uh, for those roles that have uh, been filled, people that have stepped up, and also uh, for God to continue to bless us um, as we go about His ministry here. Will you pray with me? Father God, we come to you this morning, and um, we look to you um, as our Father, as our provider, as our protector. We, uh, Lord, I also Lift up those in our church family this morning that are hurting, that are grieving. I think of Marilyn uh, this morning who uh, found out last night her uh, cousin has passed away. For others who are uh, with parents who are ailing, and even in hospice, we pray your comfort in those situations. Lord, thanks for this wonderful group of believers and how they step up to serve you. We pray that you would impress upon all of our hearts how best to serve Uh, your body, and pray that you would give us courage and faith to step out and do that. Uh, Lord, um, so often with money, it uh, causes us to uh, be uncomfortable or to have difficulty trusting you. I pray that you would give us faith, both uh, individually as well as collectively as a church, that, uh, Lord, you would help us to be courageous and generous in our giving as you have been generous to us. Uh, God, we thank you for the bounty and the abundance that we enjoy um, living where we do. Please make us generous people, faithful people. Lord, uh, other things that we can mention, um, lots of burdens among us, lots of healing and need. Lord, please work among us. And as we open your word this morning, please open our hearts and teach us uh, this morning. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Anybody here remember your first day of college, your first college class, or perhaps your first professor, Uh, those of us that went to college? I remember um, my first day and my first class was a Monday morning class at 8.30, uh, who advised me to have a first class as a freshman in college at 8.30 in the morning, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday? Uh, I was at OSU, and I remember that day I had gone to college with one of my best buddies. We were roommates there. We were in the same fraternity. And I remember that first day of college <clears throat> getting ready <clears throat> for biology class. That was my first uh, class, Life Science East, and we got up about an hour early that day, took a shower before class, fixed our hair, got on nice clothes, and that lasted for that day only. 
Uh, and then the next on Wednesday, we were in ball caps and didn't eat cereal or anything for breakfast and just went to class, right? How many of you remember my, also my very first trepidation of your first paper in college? That also happened for me in biology class. Uh, we had to write, that was kind of the culmination of that semester, a 20-page research paper. And to this day, I still remember the, the title of that paper that I had to do for that biology class, the title of it being The Effects of Dams on Salmon. Have I got your attention now? You know, I don't remember exactly what I said in there, but I'm sure it was you know, top cutting-edge science you know, that I uh, fell upon. Uh, but the effects of dams on salmon, uh, did, did you know that salmon, they, they swim to the ocean or away from where they were born, but then uh, a couple years after, they swim upstream and find their way back to where they were born to spawn at the place that they were born. Did you know that? Sometimes hundreds of miles, they by instinct can find that place where they were born. And so salmon swim upstream. And that's one of the things that I learned in that paper. I also learned another really fascinating scientific fact about salmon swimming upstream. There's one ingredient that you need to be able to swim upstream as a, as a salmon. And that is, you have to be alive. You have to be alive. Uh, because things that are dead just go with the flow. Just go with the flow. In fact, a uh, writer of a generation ago named uh, G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, a dead thing can go with a stream, but only a living thing can go against it. What we're talking about in this short six-week series of Daniel is basically going against the flow, swimming against the current of our times, and trying to not just survive, but thrive and to thrive, to go against the flow, to survive and thrive in a predominantly pagan culture, we have to be alive. And if you're dead, or if you're spiritually dead, or if you're just spiritually lazy or unaware, you will just drift as a dead fish and go with the flow. What does it look like to go against the current, to swim against the times, if you will? We're considering Daniel's life uh, to get some ideas from that. And as you know from weeks uh, before, if you weren't here, we've been looking at Daniel's life and we found in the first verse of the book, Daniel 1.1, we find this turning point, this 9-11 point, if you will, for Daniel where uh, Jerusalem, the city of God, was besieged. They were attacked. And not only was the temple destroyed, but many of the royalty, many of the upper class of Israel, of those living in Jerusalem, were deported to this pagan kingdom, Babylon. And Daniel was one of those deported. It was a turning point in his life. And the rest of the book shows us how Daniel goes and he serves faithfully. He actually prospers in this pagan kingdom. What does it take to thrive in a pagan world? That's our topic in this series. Our sermon title this morning is called Two Bad Choices. Two bad choices, and I am not this morning talking about presidential politics, okay? I know you might have thought that. This has nothing to do with politics, but it is similar because you know what? When you have two choices that look bad to you, you have to go about finding a third choice. You have to go about finding an alternative, and many in our country today are finding what's the third choice? What is the better alternative in this predicament that we are? But two bad choices this morning is not about presidential politics. It's actually about how we navigate life 
in the times that we find ourselves. Because I think often Christians today and Christians throughout history have made two wrong choices or two errors in the way they approach culture or the way they live in the times. One of those choices, a wrong choice, is to conform to throw up your hands and and just give in to the culture, to conform. That's one wrong choice. But the other wrong choice, not only conforming, but the other wrong choice is cocooning. Cocooning, that is to surround yourself, to protect yourself from the evil, ugly world and just isolate yourself. Conforming or cocooning, both of those I want to suggest this morning are bad choices and not what Christ did and not what we need to do to live faithfully like Daniel in these times. So if you uh, will, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to flip around a little bit today. But Daniel chapter 1, we'll see the dilemma that Daniel is faced with, which is actually the same dilemma that we have today in these difficult times. And to hear the rain, let's just acknowledge for a second, the rain is coming down again. We all hear it. Uh, one, one old saint named Leonard Ravenhill has written, has written this. Leonard Ravenhill says, The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy. Then put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Let me read that again to you. The greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him, make him holy and then put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. God has not called us to conform to the world nor to cocoon from the world, to isolate and to run from the world, but to be holy in an unholy place at an unholy time. How do we do that? Well, we see Daniel's difficulty is just kind of a survey through this book. You see that Daniel really did have uh, difficulty. He really did have a dilemma as to how he related to the broader culture and to his employer and to the people uh, around here. This will be on the screen, but basically, Daniel lived in a pagan capital. He took a Babylonian name. Daniel means God is my judge. But Daniel's name is changed from Daniel to Belshazzar which means Bel is my God. He was given a pagan name. He also served a pagan king. He had a pagan employer, so to speak. He outperformed his peers in quality and excellence. He resolved himself not to be defiled. He wouldn't eat the king's food. He respected even those he disagreed with. Daniel was known for his integrity of being above reproach. He was promoted more than once and served multiple kings. He refused to bow and worship false gods. He remained steadfast in his worship. He prayed regularly. Chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Daniel prayed regularly as was his custom. He continued in his worship of the one true God. His loyalty was to God over his job and over his boss. See, Daniel had this dilemma of what does it look like to live for God in a pagan world? And it's still the dilemma that you and I have today. Or in the words of the New Testament, how are we in the world and yet not of the world? And Daniel, we see here, he walked the line. He walked the line. And in fact, not only did he 
walked the line, but he prospered and he was promoted. Daniel chapter 6, verse 28 says this at, at the end of Daniel's story. It says this, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. See, Daniel was faithful not only to Nebuchadnezzar, faithful during the reigns not only of Nebuchadnezzar, but also kings after Nebuchadnezzar. He remained in that position. He remained in that influence. How in the world did he do it? Well, one of the ways that he did it is that Daniel resisted the dichotomy. He resisted the dichotomy and he found a third way. He, he determined him in himself not to conform and not to cocoon, but to find a third way. He stayed in that position, even though he was surrounded by paganism. He stayed in that position and he stayed faithful. That's the dilemma for us too. And we have these two bad choices. Often, particularly in the West, we, have, we are victims or we are caught in what I would say is binary thinking. Anybody know what binary programming is or binary thinking? We got some computer people back. Binary coding, Michael, you can explain. It's basically zeros and ones, right? It's a coding process that just uses two numbers. Well, binary thinking is what we're often uh, victim to in the West, and that is just two options. Things are either right or wrong. Things are either black or white. Things are either all or nothing. That's binary thinking. And binary thinking isn't always bad. That's, there's a good place for binary thinking. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There is a time when things are black and white. And sometimes it is all or nothing, but not all the time. And often in this difficult path called life where we're trying to be a faithful Christian, we have to escape binary thinking and find the third option. Find the alternative among two bad choices. Those bad choices, again, being assimilating to the culture or isolating from the culture. Conforming to the culture or cocooning to the culture. And Daniel shows us that this is possible. He did it. He lived and he prospered. He thrived in pagan times with this wisdom that he had. Think about it even in uh, Jesus' day, in, in uh, Daniel's day, binary thinking again. In that time, you were either irreligious or you were religious. You were either a polytheist, you believed in multiple gods, or you were a monotheist, as the Jews were, one God. And Jesus comes on the scene and breaks through binary thinking and says, no, there is one God, but that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, a third way. Neither religion nor irreligion, the gospel Jesus found the third way, as I hope we can find the third way. And Daniel himself was instructed in the third way. Turn with me uh, back to the book of Jeremiah, a few books before Daniel. Daniel chapter 29, I want to look briefly here in Jeremiah 29. As it explains, Jeremiah writes this letter to those who are in exile. The time frame here is the same time as we're reading about in Daniel. And these instructions to the people living in Babylon... Help them walk the line. 
show them hints about how to be faithful. So Daniel chapter 29, it'd be great to read the uh, whole chapter, uh, but verses one through three kind of set the stage. They say, at the time of the exiles, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar had taken them into exile, Jeremiah writes this letter. And verse four, we actually get a, a peek. We have a copy of the letter. So follow along with me in verse four of Jeremiah 29. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice, first of all, as we just stop right there, that that God is saying to them, I have sent them into exile. Yeah, you are victim of a pagan nation. You are a victim, if you will, of an evil empire. But ultimately, God even has control over that. And this hasn't happened apart from the hand of God. Verse 5, here's the instructions to those who are in exile. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Let me stop and interrupt for a second. They had some false prophets among us, among them. And if you read back in chapter 28, what the, what the false prophets were telling God's people is, hey, don't worry about it. This, you're going to be out of here pretty quick. You're going to go back to the promised land in just a, a year or two. Well, guess what? That was false. That was false prophecy because God had actually told them they would be in exile for 70 years. And these false prophets like TV preachers today are basically saying, hey, just if you do the right things, everything will turn out okay. You'll be out of this mess in a year or two. Not so. The false, the false prophets gave them a prophecy that looked good, but it wasn't the truth. Go on, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a, ho- and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What's the promise in verse 14? You're going to go back to the promised land, but it's not going to be in a year or two. It's going to be in 70 years. And in one of the most quoted verses of the whole Old Testament, verse 11, this is stitched on pillows everywhere in America. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, that's this coffee mug verse right here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future. And I hope that's one of our favorite verses. But do you know that that verse comes in the context of, hey, you know what? I have plans for you, but the plans are going to come to fruition in about 70 years. So if you've got that stitched on your pillow on your couch at home, hey, it's a great verse. It gives us hope. But guess what? It might not happen in the next year or the next year. In context, it was going to happen in 70 years. But for now, you're living in pagan area, neighborhood pagan. But eventually, God's promises will come through. 
Now, Daniel, even in the paganism, was still able to prosper. We can prosper today as Daniel did. But sometimes our future and our hope doesn't come for 70 years, 80 years, perhaps the day we die and meet the Lord. What's the big idea of Jeremiah's letter? What's the big idea of God's word here to the people in exile? Does he tell them to just conform to Babylonian life? No. He doesn't say become like the culture, but he does say live there. Take wives, let your children be married, build houses, plant vineyards, be about your life for the 70 years. Don't just get an apartment and and hole up for about six months. Build a home. Stay there. You're going to be there for a while and try to influence the culture. He says don't conform, but also don't cocoon. Build a home. Contribute there. Pray for the welfare of the community. Pray for the pagan area. Pray for your pagan neighborhood that you live in. Neither cocoon nor conform, but to live faithfully in that time, in that place. Be good citizens of a place that you wouldn't choose to live. Pray for your community. Don't just criticize the culture, but positively contribute to the culture. Do good. Seek the welfare of the community. Work for progress. In a few weeks, I'm going to uh, introduce a new kind of aspect of our mission around here at Centennial Church, and that is we've, we've asked Adzel Marmita to be our local outreach leader so that we can focus better on our mission in our local community. We want every four to six weeks to give you an opportunity to go out and do good in our community, to seek the welfare of the city, whether it's serving at a soup kitchen or whether it's helping single moms around this area with their yard work or with their home repairs or whether it's helping at a, at a shelter, things like that. We want to seek the good of the, of the community. We want to be missionaries to the community around us. That's what Jeremiah is telling us here. That's God's instructions to the world. We need to be good citizens even in not-so-good times. What does that look like today? Uh, There's not a statue of Bell or not a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. No one's asking us yet to worship the Donald or the Hillary. Uh, What does that look like today? We We still have these questions. We still have this dilemma. What do you do when your boss is doing things at work that you think are kind of shady, kind of ethically questionable. What do you do? What do you do when your daughter's on the dance team and you're kind of uncomfortable with some of the moves, some of the dress? What do you do? What do you do when your child's reading a textbook and you think that some of the things they're reading are just flat untrue, anti-Christian, Anti what the Bible would teach. How do you handle that? What do you do when the coach of the team schedules practices on Sundays? How do you handle that? Well, I can't give you answers to all those scenarios this morning, but what I want to offer to you is an alternative, is a third way of thinking about it. Not to conform just totally do what the coach says, totally do what the school says, nor to cocoon and just set up your tent and move away off into the country and just kind of isolate yourself in a nice little monastery and get away from the big bad world. Those are two 
bad choices. I can't tell you what to do in these situations, but I can tell you that you have to ask the question. Because if you don't ask the question about the dance team or if you don't ask the question about the textbook, you may be just assimilating to the culture. You may be subconsciously conforming. But if you know the answer to every one of those questions and you think you have a grid by which to put them through and and you think you have black and white and, and what you choose is what everybody else should choose about school or about the textbooks or about the dance team or the kind of movies that we watch, if you have a list of do's and don'ts and you've got it all kind of nicely black and white figured out, guess what? You're probably subconsciously or even consciously cocooning from the world. You've raised up walls and you've built absolutes that are not necessarily biblical instead of taking things with wisdom and navigating how do I be in this world and yet not become like this world. You follow me? If you don't ask the question, you're conforming. But if you have all the right answers for you and everyone else in your life, you may be cocooning. You've got to ask the question. What I want to encourage us to do is to do the hard things, not the easy things. The easy things are to go with the flow, give in, or just give up and get out of here. Those are the easy choices. The hard choice is to swim against the current, to know when to give in, to to know when to speak up, to know when to shut up. To know, you know, I can put up with this. Just like Daniel. Daniel took a pagan name. There's no indication in the scripture that Daniel resisted the pagan name. There is indication that he resisted the diet. He wouldn't eat the food that they brought him. He was educated for three years in paganism. He learned the occult and witchcraft among the Babylonians. And he graduated first in his class. In classes that I would be uncomfortable taking. Because it was false religion. He rose to the top, and he navigated this pagan world with grace and truth and wisdom to say, I've got to live here. God sent me here. God's placed me here. But I can't just live like the Babylonians. I have to be faithful to Christ as I live here. That's our dilemma. That's our challenge. If your greatest desire, students, Parents, all of us, if your greatest desire is popularity, then you'll just go with the flow. You just throw up your hands and say, everything's okay, nothing's off limits, let's just go with the flow. If your greatest desire is protection, then you'll be tempted, subconsciously or consciously, to build high fences, high walls, to separate yourself and isolate yourself from the big bad world, and you will lose Light and salt in the dark world. The easy thing to do is to conform. The easy thing to do is cocoon. The hard thing to do is in the steps of Jesus, walk with grace and truth and wisdom to navigate these things. That's hard, but it's the right thing to do. In the words of Jesus, or the description of Jesus, I should say, John 1.14, Jesus is described as this. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the, glory of the only one, sorry, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't stay away. The Word became flesh. The message version says He moved into the neighborhood. But He didn't move into the neighborhood and shake His finger at all the, the, the people that were driving fast down the street while the kids were playing. He, he showed up with grace and truth. He had truth. And he spoke truth. But he did it in grace. In his prayer, John chapter 17, as Jesus is about to go to the cross, in John chapter 17, verses 15 and 16, Jesus prays to the Father these words. He says, Do not take them from the world, but protect them from the evil one. That's John chapter 17, verse 16. Do not take them from the world, but keep them from the evil one. And then he goes on and says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus' prayer for you is not that you would be removed from the difficult circumstances that we're in, but that you would be protected from the evil one, but not be of the world just as he is not of the world. In the words of Peter, Peter uh, Chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Sorry, the next one there, Eric. Peter says this. He says the same thing like this. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Two things I want to point out there. He's going to say that, that people are come, going to come to you and say, What's the reason for your hope? It's not an offense, it's a defense. You're going to have to get a reason, a defense for why people see hope in you. They're going to come to you and say, why do you live differently? But he's going to say, when you talk to them, don't wag your finger and don't talk down to them condescendingly. Talk to them with gentleness and respect. Grace and truth, gentleness and respect. Over the last year or so, I've watched the story of a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University and a lesbian as she taught there. And she uh, is, tells her story of coming to Christ in a book called The Unlikely, or what is it? The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And as this uh, English professor in Syracuse, this is a snippet of the, of the story described in an article in Christianity Today. Rosaria Butterfield says this. She says, the, the word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name, those who professed that name commanded my pity and wrath. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. Fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality and probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttressed the Christian right. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book they had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. It was 1997. 
The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Kent didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared, from, where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with a worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview, but Christianity is, is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placard cards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone else, uh, that everyone else I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act, they did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times the first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering that my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria, she warned. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I it overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. She goes on to recount her story of putting her trust in Christ. But what got her there was not a believer who preached at her but someone who loved her with compassion and genuinely entered her world as a caring friend. And conversation began and the Spirit did its work. Peter says, be ready to give a defense. Be ready to stand up and, and tell your hope. Be, be ready to, to share the story of Jesus and the truth of the Bible, but do so with gentleness and respect. See, the bad choices are easy. 
Anybody can give in. Anybody can point their finger and condemn other people and then just cocoon and isolate themselves away from the world. But the hard thing to do is the Christ-like thing, to stand for the truth with gentleness and respect. That's what Daniel did, the hard thing. He walked the line. He lived bi-culturally. A good citizen, but faithful as a citizen of his heavenly king. In the words of one esteemed theologian, you gotta know when to hold them and know when to fold them and know when to run, right? Let's do the hard thing. Let's do the hard thing. Don't conform, don't cocoon. And the steps of Jesus incarnate the truth and infiltrate the world. Live in it and spread the gospel. Be in the world, but not of the world. Speak the truth in love. Hate sin and love sinners. Hold your standards high and, let, and set the standard for compassion. Be strong and tender. Don't sit silent, but don't scream. Don't deny the truth and don't use the truth as a club. Don't criticize the culture. Don't just criticize the culture, but contribute positively to it. Make judgments, but don't be judgmental. Be above reproach, but be approachable. Be a lover of the truth and truly committed to love. Love God and love others, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Will you bow and pray with me? Father God, we come to you this morning um, concerned about our times, but with hope, God, because you have sovereignly placed us here for this time in this place. And I pray, Father, that you would help us in, in the steps of Jesus to do the hard thing, to stand for the truth, and to do so with grace. Father, we thank you that in the mess that we were in, you would, did not stand off at a distance, but you came close in Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. And you gave us not judgment, but a gift, a gift that we could never earn ourselves. And so we're grateful. Father, empower us by your Holy Spirit to live in light of your grace and truth and to be lights in this dark world. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray.